This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomele Lezondi and I'm with Hachola Netulo, Hussain Matebula and Dochemane Lesao. Your top stories. A UN report finds South Sudan government fully responsible for the killing of more than 70 people in July. Cameroonians have buried 30 of their relatives who died after consuming a locally brewed gin. In economics, South Africa's second largest private hospital firm to buy a chain of psychiatric health facilities for 91 million US dollars. And in sport, Ghana, the last African representative to be booted out of the 2016 FIFA Women's World Cup. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. The United Nations has released a special report that finds the South Sudan government fully responsible for the killing of more than 70 people in July this year in the capital Juba and its outskirts. The United States now plans to impose travel restrictions and an arms embargo against the Juba government. The South Sudanese government has not yet commented. James Shimanyula reports. In the report, the United Nations Security Council wants punitive measures to be taken against the Juba authorities to prevent future occurrence of chaotic situations similar to the one that occurred in July this year, resulting in the death of more than 70 people. As the United Nations ponders over the action to be taken against the Juba government of President Salva Kiir, United States Representative to the United Nations, Samantha Power, has announced that her country is planning to impose travel and an arms embargo on South Sudan. A car bombing has killed two people and wounded 17 in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi. According to medical officials at the Jalal Hospital, explosives detonated in the hospital's parking lot on Monday. It's the third attack targeting the hospital this year. The death toll is expected to rise as several of the wounded are in a critical condition. Last week, Hefta's forces expelled Islamic militants from the key stronghold in the city, but fighting continues in other areas. Nigeria's National Emergency Management Agency says troops have gunned down a suicide bomber at a transit camp for refugees from Boko Haram in the northeastern city of Maiduguri. The attack on Saturday is the sixth in, th- in three weeks rather in the city. Security forces have foiled most of the attacks. On Friday, five suicide bombers targeted a police checkpoint and a bus station near the transit camp, killing four of themselves and two civilian self-defense fighters. The fifth Boko Haram has recently Rather, the Boko Haram has recently stepped up attacks after months of long lull. South Africa's ruling ANC has vowed to use today's meeting with the party veterans to restore unity and discipline. The ANC National Working Committee is meeting them in Pretoria to discuss concerns around the state of the ANC and the country. The meeting comes amid growing calls that President Jacob Zuma step down. Reverend Frank Chikane, Mavusom Simang, Ahmed Kathrada and Dennis Goldberg are among the veterans attending. ANC spokesperson Zizi Kotwa. 
we are at one with our veterans in terms of what must come out of this meeting. That out of this meeting we want to see unity of the African National Congress. Regardless of how different we may interpret events, but the African National Congress out of this engagement must be as strong like a rose that grew from the concrete, in spite of the challenges. And I think it is in that context that we are happy that we, got, uh, we, we all gathered here today because we are here only for one purpose, to build unity of the African National Congress. And even veterans themselves, that's why jealously have been guiding their, their own organization, the African National Congress, that they want to see unity of their own organization. And finally, South African musicians have accused political parties of meddling with the public broadcaster's affairs because of its transformation agenda on local music. They have accused the opposition DA in particular of waging a systematic program to remove the SABC's Claudi Mutuneng for spearheading the 90% local music content. President of the Musician Association for South Africa, Debo Jose Tatu, says their members will be marching to the DA offices in Johannesburg tomorrow. They've lodged a case against SAPC wanting to remove Claudi Mutsuening and Basi Tugwana from their positions. So this is a systematic um, program uh, that the DA has uh, made it its own campaign to get rid of the SAPC beca- uh, uh, management because of the progressive policies that touch musicians, uh, for instance, the 90%. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thanks very much, Jolene, for that update. It is 17.06 Central African time. Now, the United Nations has just released a special report that finds a South Sudanese government fully responsible for the killing of more than 70 people in July in the capital, Juba, and its outskirts. Now, the United States plans to impose travel sanctions and an arms embargo against the Juba government. So far, government has not commented on the UN report. Our East African correspondent, James Shimanyula, reports. The report that United Nations blames the South Sudan government for the killing of more than 70 people in July this year was prepared by its panel of experts. The report points out that the Yuba government should have taken action to prevent the fighting between its forces and the fighters loyal to the now rebel leader Riek Machar. In the report, the United Nations Security Council wants punitive measures to be taken against the Juba authorities to prevent future occurrence of chaotic situations similar to the one that occurred in July this year, resulting in the death of more than 70 people. As the United Nations ponders over the action to be taken against the Juba government of President Salva Kiir, United States representative to the United Nations, Samantha Power, has announced that her country is planning to impose travel and an arms embargo on South Sudan. But Samantha Power decries continued shipment of sophisticated weapons into South Sudan. More arms are flowing into that country. The acquisition of heavy weapons, aircraft, and military vehicles which have been used to inflict such devastating violence in this conflict. As we've learned elsewhere, an arms embargo is effective if there's a broad and robust commitment to its enforcement. 
Imposing new targeted sanctions designations will isolate the individuals who have consistently been responsible for the acts that have brought South Sudan to this moment and which have caused so much suffering. Let us stop acting as if the principle of sovereignty, as critical as it is to the functioning of the international order, as if that principle gives the South Sudanese government or any government license to commit mass atrocities against its own people or to fuel a humanitarian crisis that has left millions of lives hanging in the balance. And yet, those who perpetrate these attacks, who hack innocent civilians to death, who burn down their homes, who rape women, who conscript men and young boys to fight, threaten journalists and human rights defenders, enjoy near total impunity. The same goes for those who incite others to carry out such hateful acts. The message that the government sends by not holding them accountable is crystal clear. Keep doing what you're doing. These ingredients that I've described and others have described in more powerful uh, and greater detail, these are ingredients that create a climate conducive to mass atrocities. Samantha Power, United States Representative to the United Nations. It may be pertinent to point out that even before the United States imposes sanctions on South Sudan, the UN did impose travel sanctions, but they never worked because top government and opposition officials in South Sudan traveled freely. Bran Adeba, Associate Policy Director at the Washington-based Enough Project, wants imposition of sanctions to be monitored to ensure that such sanctions work. Adeba cites an example of rebel leader Riek Machar's spokesman Peter Gadet Dak was been entering foreign countries while travel sanctions are in place. The fact that Peter Gadet himself has been able to travel from Khartoum to Nairobi, as stated in the panel of experts report, is an illustration of the loopholes that exist and that need to be plugged. He's not the only one. There is a sanctioned general in the South Sudanese army who has previously also traveled to Addis Ababa. So this is the conundrum that the Security Council may have to address for these measures to be effective. That was Brian Adeba, Associate Policy Director at the Washington-based Enough Project. So far, the Juba government has not commented on the United Nations report. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. South Africa's ruling African National Congress's National Working Committee, including President Jacob Zuma, is meeting with a delegation representing more than 100 stalwarts of the party. The stalwarts had requested a meeting with the president over concerns they had regarding the direction of the ANC. They have called for a consultative conference to discuss the 104-year-old movement's future, with some calling for President Jacob Zuma to step down. Professor ABC Ndlejana, Associate Professor of political science at the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg says the meeting is important. It's quite important um, and also indicates um, a certain level of a crisis within the ANC um, that people outside of the ANC have to come in to intervene because structures within the ANC seem unable to go beyond this damage. Um, the fact of the matter is that the ANC faces a serious electoral decline and and its president is the primary cause of that, uh, both in terms of uh, bad reputation and also in terms of mismanagement of his leadership, uh, bad decision that is made 
Um, and the implications of his bad management and possible corruption is likely to go on uh, affecting the ANC quite badly into the future. So the issue is, as these veterans are saying, is that as the party responsible for the damage, he must step down. So that's, that's how serious it is. Uh, now, we know that um, in the past, um, these veterans have been making ongoing efforts, you know, to try and get this kind of meeting going, and um, they have been blocked in the past. Why do you think that the National Working Committee has finally agreed to meet with them? Well, I mean, it's common sense, I think, prevailing ultimately, uh, because you are quite right. President Zuma was not keen to meet them, because he knew exactly what they were going to say. Uh, some of them have said it in public, um, that is bad news for the ANC. So he tried to belittle them, but then, you know, all right-minded people, uh, you cannot you cannot belittle, you cannot question mm. the credibility or the credentials of someone like Ahmed Katra, the Finnish, Nwala, all of them, mm. and Rumlanga, you know, so ultimately common sense had to prevail that these are veteran leaders of the ANC who enjoy a lot of respect out mm. there. Uh, you cannot really be raising silly questions about who they are when everyone knows who they are. So they have to meet them. So there's a serious concession on their part to meet them. Now, beyond um, the level of respect, of course, that they uh, deserve, you know, as veterans of the movement and, of course, the role that they played in terms of the liberation struggle, um, uh, what sort of weight do they hold in terms of um, the ANC as we speak now? Because, um, uh, you know, the stalwarts have been facing a lot of attacks from some people within the ANC. Uh, most prominent was, uh, of course, the chairperson of Umkondo Caesar uh, Veterans Association, Kebi Mapatwe, who even questioned some of the veteran struggle credentials. So how much weight do they actually hold at this stage? Well, they, they wield a lot of moral authority, especially within society. It doesn't work well for the ANC to be seen to be persuaded by old people uh, who, are, who have been pulled out of their retirement from the comfort of their homes to go and beg the ANC to do the right thing. Uh, that's one. So in terms of public image, in terms of public relations, it's bad for the ANC. Uh, but the the message that is carried by the veterans will obviously uh, encourage those who are within the ANC who also want Jacob Zuma to step down, especially in the NEC and most importantly as the ANC caucus in parliament. Um, realistically speaking, what they have is, is as I said earlier, is to make uh, a moral appeal. Really. Mm-hmm. They cannot force Jacob Zuma to step down. NC structures to do that. Uh, all that they could do is to point out the obvious and use the stature of their personalities to persuade them. And then you'll see if, if, if ANC people are open to any moral persuasions or whether they, you know, they'll also uh, dig in, they won't mm-hmm. move. Uh, and also because, I mean, this decision carries a potential damage to some of them who are facing all sorts of charges, yeah. especially President Zuma. Quite soon, you might have a judicial commission of inquiry looking into the Kanda, into the state of uh, state of capture report, and that commission uh, might come up with very negative findings against Jabu Zuma, based on which he might be charged. And if you are charged, might go to prison. Already, the NPA has more than 700 charges that it has to bring against Jacob Zuma. So. It's a very unsafe and vulnerable uh, space for Jacob Zuma now. If he steps down as president, he's left completely vulnerable. Uh, so for him, for him, the presidency of the republic and of the ANC is pretty much uh, protection against jail time.
Mm. Now, Kosato's Central Executive uh, Committee is also meeting today. I am expected to debate uh, workers' views on President Jacob Zuma's future and uh, who should be succeeding him um, in future. Now, this also comes in the wake of Nehao after its NEC meeting earlier on this month calling for the President to resign. Now, you know, whatever the affiliate uh, unions are pronounced on, what implications does this have um, on the alliance at large? Well, it it increases the voice within the alliance uh, for Jacob Zuma to step down. Um, so you are applying more and more pressure uh, onto the ANC, and especially because these are structures, these are individuals who are active within the ANC. So it would be an indication of opposition to Jacob Zuma staying in power within the broader alliance. You know, obviously that would mean he's he's losing more and more friends. That increases pressure on him to step down. That is Professor Ibisin Letyana, who is the Associate Professor of Political Science at the Institute for Pan-African Thoughts and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg, talking to Ziko Namiso. Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival Langstrand Beach, Walfus Bay, Namibia 23rd, 24th, 25th of December Music Festival with international and local artists Four night accommodation packages and activities available at Computicket Travel Main events tickets available at Computicket 150 Namibian dollars, 150 rands and 130 pula Tickets are available at ShopRite and Checkers Get yours today VIP is 500 Namibian dollars, 500 rands or 380 pula. Hashtag Xmas in Namibia. Hashtag Harambe. Cultures of Southern Africa route is powered by Channel Africa. www.culturalfestival.net. Download the app today. 1718 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomela Lezondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, South African opposition parties and non-governmental organizations have raised concern about some provisions of the Protected Disclosures Amendment Bill. The main concern is a provision that allows for people who disclose false information about corruption to be prosecuted. The bill was adopted by Parliament's Justice Committee last week. The critics argue that this provision will lead to people who mistakenly give information being victimized. Joseph Omosia reports. The aim of the Protected Disclosures Amendment Bill is to provide procedures for disclosing certain information regarding unlawful or irregular conduct by employees and employers. It seeks to protect employees from being subjected to prosecution or victimization for disclosing this information. At the heart of the bill is the need to encourage more people to become part of the fight against corruption. At the same time, the bill will also seek to discourage people from falsely accusing others by making it an offense to knowingly make a false disclosure. Justice Committee Chairperson Matole Motsecha says deliberately false disclosures could ruin people's lives. We want to protect uh, the whistleblowers, but at the same time, We have to protect the people who may be prejudiced by false information because uh, we are not dealing with angels. There may be people who want to settle scores by disclosing false information which will hurt individuals, their families, their relatives. Uh, So uh, 
there has to be a balance. The DA's justice spokesperson, Glennis Breitenbach, says if government is serious about getting people to cooperate with the authorities, it should do away with the provision for people to be prosecuted for trying to do the right thing. We cannot have a clause in a bill that's designed to protect whistleblowers and then makes it a criminal offence if they incorrectly disclose information. It will put the lid on on whistleblowers that no one will come forward. Already people are so hesitant to come forward. Uh, People put little bits of information in brown envelopes. And and we've seen whistleblowers being hunted down and and demonized and chased out of the organizations and, and sometimes being killed. ACDP MP Steve Swart also says while they appreciate the protection that is being given, the benefits will be undermined by the criminalization of false disclosure. We believe that there is sufficient other legislation, such as disciplinary action, such as actions for damages, for criminal injury even, criminal actions. Why are we putting a criminal sanction in this particular bill? To us, it's a warning. Don't blow the whistle because you will be intimidated, you will be threatened, even if you think that information is strictly correct. The bill is scheduled to be debated in the National Assembly this week and it could be sent to the President to sign into law before the end of this session of Parliament. I am Joseph Musia in Parliament. Cameroonians are burying 30 of theirs who died after consuming a locally brewed gin called Ondodol. Hundreds have been hospitalized and the death toll is expected to rise since many people in the villages where, where the gin was consumed seek medical assistance from traditional medical practitioners. Authorities have banned the consumption and sale of the liquor which the poor masses who cannot afford a beer prefer. Channel Africa's Mokikinzaka is in Yaoundé. Hundreds are returning to their villages in eastern Cameroon to see if their family members, friends and relatives are still alive and in good health. Joseph Mwampi, traditional ruler of Mwampi village, says he does not know what has befallen his people. Madame is here. He says his people are devastated. And he is devastated because he is now a widower after his wife died from consuming a drink. Among those who have assembled at the traditional ruler's residence is 34-year-old Rose Mpane, who says she is now a widow. She says after drinking the alcohol, her husband complained he had pains all over his eyes and began having breathing crises. She says before they got to the hospital, he gave up. Last week, residents complained that people who consume odontol, a local whiskey made of corn and palm wine, were collapsing and dying. The death toll has risen to 30 in the Upper Nyong Division of the East Region. Hundreds have been moved to hospitals. Among those who say they cheated death is 50-year-old Edouard Sule, receiving treatment at the Abombang Hospital. He says he got a violent headache after consuming a glass of odontol he bought from people who supplied a strong drink in their village. 
His wife, Angelina Mwai, is also responding to treatment. She says back for her vision that is blurred, she feels a bit relieved. Joseph Boris Esonu, the medical doctor taking care of the patients, says some consumers are treated of side defects while others were dehydrated. Le pronostic vital est très bon. Certainement, certains auront à avoir des séquelles. He says many of those who come to his hospital have been treated for visual problems. He says some were dehydrated and that they have been treating the patients by provoking their bodies to eliminate toxic substances from their blood. Ce sont les instructions que nous avons de nous la plus haute hiérarchie du ministère de la santé. It is feared that the death toll may rise. Some of the patients are receiving treatment from traditional medical practitioners in hard-of-access areas. Others are seeking God's intervention through prayer. Richard Zenglim too, the highest administrator in the land, says he has given instructions that all the patients be transported to hospitals. Mon problème surtout maintenant c'est de sensibiliser les chefs. He says the immediate challenge is to convince traditional rulers to track all of those who have refused to go to the hospital and pastors who have been heavily keeping some patients in their churches. Cameroon's president Paul Bia has instructed hospitals to treat patients free of charge. According to the World Health Organization, each Cameroonian consumes an equivalent of 8.4 liters of pure alcohol per year, with beer being the most popular alcoholic beverage. The figure places Cameroon in the top 10 countries in sub-Saharan Africa for alcohol consumption. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. And you can also send us emails. It's info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. If your preferred method of communication is SMS, then we are on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you want to send us SMSs there. African researchers and budding scientists have decried the lack of financial capacities in their duties. Speaking last week in Kigali in Rwanda, scientists and researchers from more than 50 countries around the world said governments in developing countries have in general given little or no attention to researchers. Sylvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. This emerged during the 27th World Academy of Sciences General Meeting that took place in Kigali late last week, bringing together policymakers, researchers, scientists, and science students from around the world. Some emerging scientists and researchers had this to say. The main problem we have, we as researchers, is financial problems. How can you do research without money? Yes, sometimes it requires a lot of money to do your research, to investigate, you know, and sometimes let's say that you maybe find money for doing that research and then you want to publish it. In his address to the gathering, President Paul Hagami stated that science plays a critical role in Rwanda's socioeconomic transformation by helping to narrow the gap with more developed regions. 
in a seeming mood of encouraging young researchers some awards were given out let me start by thanking you for the medal that has been awarded it honors all rwandans whose hard work got our country to where it is today he said unless african countries and other developing world prioritize science and technology the ambitious sustainable development goals may hardly be achieved throughout history humankind has relied on science to find practical solutions to its challenges in the developing world in particular science plays a critical role in our socio-economic transformation by helping to narrow the gap between us and the more developed regions the president of the world academy of science by channel said the gathering was a seemingly decisive attempt to move over and bridge the existing gap between developed and developing regions our meeting this week in kigali is a testament to the vision of the president kagami and to the energy of thousands of people who have been working to rebuild the country by channel said africa is endowed with plenty of resources and requires enough scientific researchers in various fields such as agriculture, health and education to translate those resources into development dividends. The week-long meeting included science ministers and other policymakers from across the globe, elite researchers and leaders from science associations, funding agencies and non-governmental organizations. Silvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. It's some for news headlines here is Chola Netulo. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, the United Nations has released a special report that finds the South Sudan government fully responsible for the killing of more than 70 people in July this year in the capital Juba and its outskirts. A car bombing has killed two people and wounded 17 in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi. And finally, South Africa's ruling ANC has vowed to use today's meeting with party veterans to restore unity and discipline. For Channel Africa, I'm Chalani Tulo. Thanks, Rolanda, for the headlines. It's 17.30 Central African time. It's still Channel Africa 1 on Twitter or info at channelafrica.co.za on email. You can send us your comments and your views there. My name is Spomele Lezonde with you until 1800 hours Central African time. As countries gear themselves up to mark World AIDS Day on December the 1st, a new report by the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV AIDS, UNAIDS, has once again put the spotlight on the disease. The report is titled Get on the Fast Track. The life cycle approach to HIV was launched at an event in Namibia's capital, Vinduk. To speak to us more about this, we are joined on the line by Dr. Mary May, who is the chief of the Strategic Information and Monitoring Division at UNAIDS. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Mary. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, Mary, let's start about uh, discussing the report. What necessitated you guys to compile this report again? 
I think one of the main reasons for this report is to really step back and say, where can we make the best impact in slowing down new infections and making sure people aren't on treatment uh, with the HIV epidemic? What we're seeing from the report is that the number of people starting on treatment has increased by one million in just six months. So from December 2015 until June 2016, we've seen a one million increase. So a lot of progress happening there, but a lot less progress happening around preventing new infections among young women. Mm. Uh, would you say those numbers are increasing, the numbers of new infections? They're not increasing, but they're flat. They're showing about a 6% decline. And if we're trying to meet our goal, the kind of the global targets of ending AIDS by 2030, we need to see a much sharper decline, perhaps by 74% uh, decline between now and 2020. So a, a considerable decrease. And so by focusing this report on looking at different um, life or kind of segments of age groups, uh, we can kind of shine the focus a little bit more on what's happening with young women, 15 to 24, um, as opposed to other age groups which we might see more success in. For example, young children less than 15, we're seeing a lot of success in declines in new infections. Right. Um, from your research, would you say it's because people are becoming uh, perhaps immune to information about prevention? I'm not sure that the the data actually tells us exactly why people aren't responding, but it might be just, you know, the cultural context, it might be the social environment that just doesn't give young women the opportunity to protect themselves from HIV, and in some cases also not having the knowledge, the understanding and kind of the the self-awareness to protect themselves. Right, and... uh and you are talking about increased access to medication. Um, would you say this is an effort by governments around the world? Is that why this is? Yes. I mean, we're seeing that, that one million increase in six months, um, showing a lot of progress. A lot of it's happening in sub-Saharan Africa, but also globally we're seeing increases, um, but mostly in that the eastern southern African region where there's been impressive gains in uh, people being reached with services and then starting on treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and is medication becoming affordable and is it being given out for free or do people still have to pay high prices for it? You know, that's going to vary by country, but one of the big changes that we've seen in the last year is the World Health Organization guidelines to suggest that all people who are living with HIV be started immediately on treatment as soon as they're diagnosed or offered treatment as soon as they're diagnosed. And as a result, many countries around the world have switched to taking on, to taking on this policy, and, and that is likely to have contributed to the increasing numbers that we're seeing today. Mm. Um, and in terms of impact that these reports make around the world, what type of impact are you hoping or expecting that this report is going to make? Uh, I think we'd like to really see countries step back and say, okay, where are we making, you know, taking our population, dividing it up by age group, maybe even by uh, type of population, whether it's from sex workers or men who are having sex with men or injecting drug users or, or other general population. Let's segment up the population and say, where are we having success and where do we need to really change our track and, and, and make sure that we're giving them the best opportunities possible to avoid infection. And through that, we've also included in the report a number of suggestions or you know, ideas from other countries where good progress has been made and where responses can be strengthened. Mm, take us through some of those suggestions, if, if you will. Uh, so f- just, um, 
just countries where there's been a good example, for example, um, I'm trying to think of one that comes to mind, where um, young people are being reached with services that are through peer education or through school-based education. So something that's quite easy to implement um, yet doesn't require a lot of additional funds in terms of outreach, et cetera. So examples like that are being included in the model or places where you can do, for example, point-of-care testing for, for young children when they come back with their mothers. Those are examples as well. Mm. Um, and who are you engaging with uh, this, uh, the release of this report in Namibia? Um, so it's a global. It's being released globally. It just happens to be launched in Namibia. And you know, the real when when UNAIDS puts out our World AIDS Day report, we're really trying to make sure that um, donors are seeing this information as well as countries. So while we speak about basic programs that could be implemented in countries um, and populations that should be reached, the other eye that we're looking at is to make sure that this this topic stays on the forefront of people's agendas, whether it's politicians or donors or um, world leaders to make sure that they recognize that HIV is still an issue that we haven't completed yet, but we're at the cusp of, of moving forward to actually end this epidemic. Uh, do you find that they realize that it's still an issue? Because, um, for example, in the last two years or so, we've had um, other diseases that have uh, taken center stage, like Ebola, for example, in Africa, um, Zika in South America, and others. Yeah, I think that's true. There's there's definitely competing demands out there, and we need to recognize those and and make sure that when we're responding, that we try to integrate our response, and so that when we respond to the Ebola outbreak in a country, we also make sure that the the HIV services stay in place at the same time, so that we don't see a an HIV outbreak happening later. So those sorts of ideas make sure you know having having a World AIDS Day report, having a World AIDS Day celebration altogether, make sure that the HIV agenda is still on the on the forefront and in the minds of our of our leaders. All right, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Dr. Mary May, who is the chief of the Strategic Information and Monitoring Division as the Joint UN Program on HIV AIDS and UN AIDS. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today is World Fisheries Day, celebrated every year on November 21 throughout the world. This day is celebrated through rallies, workshops, public meetings, cultural programs, dramas, exhibitions, music, and demonstrations to highlight the importance of maintaining the world's fisheries. The day helps in highlighting the critical importance to human lives of water and the lives it sustains both in and out of the water. Chris Kapfen is a Sea Market Transformation Manager at the World Wide wide fund for nature south africa well world fisheries day was established in 1998 and with with the purpose of drawing attention to some of the major threats that face our marine ecosystems like overfishing and habitat destruction 
but then also at the same time to raise awareness about the benefits that the ocean can provide us. So we use this day to highlight not only the issues, but also the opportunities, and in so doing try to find solutions to make sure that as many of the interconnected problems that we are facing can be solved in the long term, mostly through collaboration. So I think also one of the most important things to remember about a day like today is that the oceans don't only provide us benefits, but they quite often are also critically important to human lives. So everything that happens in the water, that lives in it, and that the water sustains, both in and out, and both in freshwater and marine systems, is interconnected. And we rely as humanity on those systems functioning effectively and delivering the services that we need to continue thriving on this planet. Now, talking about the raising awareness, I mean, the fish itself has been exploited that much in such a way that now we are struggling to get even the fish that we are dependent on for our livelihood. What's the way forward? I think that's a fantastic question. So I think let me first give you a bit of context about how important the ocean economy is to South Africa, especially when it comes to fisheries, which is relevant obviously on World Fisheries Day. But our commercial fisheries have an annual turnover of about 12 billion, which is about 0.5% of South Africa's GDP. It provides 27,000 direct employment opportunities and 100,000 additional indirect employment opportunities. But it's not only the commercial fishing sector which plays a role. If we talk about small-scale fisheries, there are over 230 coastal communities which have expressed an interest in participating in the small-scale fishing sector. This is likely to represent over 28,000 fishing households and about 29,000, if not slightly more, subsistence fishers at the moment. And then you also have to account for the recreational fishery sector. So between 800,000 and a million recreational anglers, of which over 28,000 are members of organized clubs and this potentially contributes 1.6 billion in terms of economic value that the recreational fisheries sector contributes. This is a, a stat from 2007. So as you can see, the ocean is tremendously important, not only from an economic but also from a social and a livelihoods perspective. But the reality is that, especially here in South Africa, a lot of the key stocks, a lot of the key marine resources that we harvest to underpin that benefit are under pressure. So DAF brought out a report in 2014 and in that report, we see that 42% of our fish stocks are overexploited. 20% were unsure of or it's unknown to what degree they're exploited. 29% are optimally exploited. And that's kind of really what we want to be aiming at. And only 9% remain underexploited. So as you can see, having over 40% of the stocks overexploited really puts all those stats around the benefits that the oceans provided that I told you earlier, puts all of that at risk. But as you say that, I mean, the ocean, we know that it's uh, very relevant for our livelihood. But the way in which we treat it, is it fair for the fisheries? Yes. So I think one of the most important things to remember here is that, firstly, one does have to look at this as a long-term sustainability issue. And when I say sustainability, I'm not talking exclusively about environmental sustainability, but economic sustainability as well. So viability of these resources to continue to underpin human activity, and especially in the cases where livelihoods are dependent on a resource. And to achieve that, one really needs to focus on increased collaboration, increased collaboration between government and within government, 
departments, but also between government and industry and within industry itself, and then also broader other stakeholders that have a vested interest in the marine environment. So that to me is key. And one of the things that I want to highlight here is also the critical importance that the markets play. So at WWF South Africa, we've actually focused on the work that's being done by the seafood market in South Africa to make sure that we incentivize responsible practice out at sea. Because if you talk about sustainable fishing practices, if there's no market demand for that, if the market isn't differentiating between those fishes which are actually acting responsibly and those which are not, it really makes it very, very difficult to transition the fishery sector. You really need to give recognition, especially through the market, to those that are willing to make positive changes. And we do that by working with some of the major seafood traders in South Africa. So we work with four of the six major retailers in South Africa. We work with two of the major restaurant franchises, a hotel chain, and then some key importers and sort of vertically integrated fishing companies in this process as well, nine in total. They've made clear commitments to sustainable seafood, which makes it very easy for the supply chain to align to that. And then six of those companies had commitments to sustainable seafood come due at the end of last year. So although they made tremendous progress towards achieving them, they did not all achieve their commitments to sustainable seafood comprehensively, but they have published revised targets and new strategies to make sure that they then address those species where they weren't able to meet their commitments. And we're highlighting that on World Fisheries Day. So you're more than welcome to go onto the WWF website. It'll be under our news feed. should be right at the top for today. You can see which companies these are and link to their websites to see exactly what it is that they're doing to keep incentivizing sustainable fishing practices in South Africa. The fishing communities, what role do they play in this celebration of World Fisheries Day? So I think it's a very topical point at the moment. And I think the most important thing from a, certainly from a livelihoods perspective, so if we're talking about small-scale fishing communities around the coast, I think they know better than most the real importance of marine resources to livelihoods. You know, they are really on the front line, and they face significant challenges. Chris Caffin is a Seafood Market Transformation Manager at the Worldwide Fund for Nature in South Africa. Talking to Wendy Lekalipa, it's time for your economic news. In economics news uh, this hour, Nigeria's gross domestic product is contracted by 2.4% in the third quarter. Africa's largest economy is leading to recession for the first time in 25 years in the second quarter of the year, following an economic crisis triggered by a slump in crude prices that has harmed the OPEC members' public finances. Crude sales make up a third of uh, Nigeria's government revenue. The statistics office says the OPEC members' oil production averaged 1.63 million barrels per day in the third quarter. And South Africa's biggest private education firm, Kuro Holdings, has acquired a 50% stake in uh, Botswana-based B.A. Isago University as part of its uh, stated goal to run 80 campuses by 2020. The transaction will be done through Kuro's wholly-owned subsidiary, the Embury Institute for Higher Education. Kuro will fund the transaction by means of existing cash reserves and bank loans. B.A. Isago University was established in Botswana in 2002 and operates from four campuses, Khaboroni, Francistown, Sirue and Maun. 
The United Nations says a change is needed at all levels of society to advance gender equality in the workplace. Experts from around the world have gathered in Panama at the UN Big, uh, Third Business Forum on Gender Equality. The forum is focusing on how the private sector can advance parity and build inclusive environments. Director of the Gender Team at the UN Development Program, Randy Davis, explains. So one of the important aspects of our work is to push women into decision-making positions in the workplace and also make sure that they are retained throughout their career and they're progressing in their career. So we want to see women who now we see in many regions of the world coming out with this similar education levels, if not higher than men, but we do not see them advancing in their professional careers at the same rate. We need change at all levels. We need public policies that enable women to advance in their careers. This means putting in place policies for care, to have a change in mindset so that the burdens of caring for children and caring for the elderly are shared between women and men, and also that there are public provisions of the system. South Africa's second largest private hospital firm, Netcare, will buy Akeso Clinics, a chain of psychiatric health facilities for 91 million US dollars. Netcare, which runs Britain's largest private hospital network, is seeking to increase its exposure to mental health care, which it sees as a fast-growing segment in its home market. Akeso is a chain of 12 South African clinics and provides specialized treatment for eating disorders, postnatal depression, addiction, and other psychiatric disorders. Shares in Netcare were up 2.6% at 2.9 US dollars per share. Morocco's trade deficit has risen 15.8% to 14.87 billion US dollars in the first 10 months of the year, compared with the same period a year ago. This is due to higher imports. Wheat imports increased as bad weather hit uh, the local harvest last year, and the value of imports rose 38% from a year earlier. The North African Kingdom's energy import bill fell by around 21.5%. Financial indicators now the dollar trading at 14.39, South African rands at 10.83, Botswana Pula at 9.86, Zambian Kwacha also trading at 0.80 to the British pound and 0.94 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,208, platinum $926 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is operating at $46.05 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. It's time for sports news. Good evening, sport fans. With your latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with football news. South African women's senior national team striker Jermaine Suaposingwe is confident that despite their goalless draw against neighbors Zimbabwe over the weekend, they can go all the way to the finals of the 2016 Women's Africa Cup of Nations if they focus and take it one game at a time. Banyana Banyana will face a host Cameroon in their second match of Group A on the 22nd of November at Stade Amadou Ahi. 
Mahidu in Yawande at 1700 Central African time. There's a lot of steps in this process and so the next step for us and is Cameroon and that's all we're going to focus everything on that and you do want to start off every tournament well and, and keep going and start off positive but there was a little positivity in the, the, the Zimbabwe match start off positive and just keep on going go to the next one go to the next one and, and that's how we will find ourselves in the final if we just focus on the next step at hand and not just look to the big picture already Ghana were the last African representative to be booted out of the 2016 FIFA Women's World Cup in Papua New Guinea this morning Nigeria were the first country to be eliminated despite beating Spain 2-1 on Sunday, needing a win against Group A winners USA to advance to the next round. All Ghana could salvage was a draw despite taking the lead in the first half. Moving on to rugby news. Saturday's loss to Italy, the first in Springboks history, resulted in even the SA rugby president apologizing to the nation for the current state of the team. I think the team has got there and, and, and put their best foot forward next week. Let's go show the South African public that they can do different. They can play better. And, and allow us to come back and, 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 and review the systems and, and, and make sure that we can we can support the Springbok team. You know, Springboks uh, brings pride to the nation and we want to make sure that they, they remain on top of uh, the world rugby rankings. There has been mounting calls for changes in the Springboks rugby set since losing to Ireland earlier this year. That's when the Springboks under current coach Alistair Kutsia lost for the first time against Ireland. Legendary Springbok fly half Nasbota says Saru and all its stakeholders need to do an introspective on the state of Springboks rugby. Maybe, maybe we did make the wrong calls. Maybe we did make the, the wrong appointments. Maybe it is time to clean up the game structure wise and, and we don't want to jump on the bandwagon and uh, just sit here and criticize because we're all quite devastated mm. you know I'm, I'm still amazed to think that that's the way we can play the point is we're not playing good rugby for the whole year we're struggling we we talk about defense every week we talk about the tag we talk about the kicking game we talk about everything every single week Kenya's chances of making it to the next year's ICC World Cup qualifiers in Bangladesh has received a major blow with three rounds of matches to play. This is after losing the second match to Hong Kong in Nairobi's Gymkhana Stadium on Sunday. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has more. Kenya lost to Hong Kong by that nine runs in the World Cricket League matches that were played in the dark with Lewis Method in a rain-soaked Nairobi Gymkhana on Sunday. After a delay of three and a half hours, play started with Kenya winning the toes and electing to field. Play was stopped again by rain with Hong Kong on 148 runs for four after 25.1 of the that one allotted overs, forcing a change in innings, with Kenya facing a revised target of 173 runs from 25 overs. Kenya started well with Rifan Karim and Alex Obanda putting on an opening stand of 79 before Obanda fell to 39 runs. Ahsan Khan was the toast of Hong Kong tacking three wickets for 12 runs. Hong Kong moved to third in the league on 11 points after eight matches as Kenya sit fifth on eight points, having beaten the visitors by three wickets in the opening encounter on Friday. For Channel Africa Sports in Nairobi, Kenya, I'm Francis Mutegi. And finally in tennis news, Andy Murray saved the best to last as he eclipsed Novak Djokovic 6-3-6-4 to claim his first ATP World Tour Finals title 
and rubber stamp the year-end top ranking last night. The squad produced a relentless display to claim a ninth title of the year, which included a second Wimbledon crown and Olympic gold in Rio. Murray's play in the winner-takes-all season climax was all the more remarkable as a day earlier he looked on the point of mental and physical exhaustion after taking almost four hours to subdue Milos Raonic in the semi-final. Yeah, it's tough right now. I think, you know, the number one uh, ranking is really kind of what sort of everyone's been speaking about the last few weeks so that it was weird it felt more like I was playing for that rather than trying to win um, this event thank you for tuning to Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African Time Letter Capital of Stories. A UN report finds a South Sudan government fully responsible for the killing of more than seventy people. Cameroonians have buried thirty of their relatives who died after consuming a locally brewed gin. And that was South Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Mohamed, and co-producer Dumelo Mugwen and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Email to info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. SMS is to plus 27-796-957-930, plus 27-796-957-930. And also tweet us, Channel Africa One. We leave you with Realist by Bernard Boy.